Part Two of Warrior of Two Worlds by Manly Wade Wellman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. They rose, but stood off respectfully. The officer spoke first. I am Robar, field commander of this defense position, he said with crisp respect. Spore is a mystic doctor, full of godly wisdom. Doriza, a junior officer and chief of the guard, and you, how could you know, are sent by the first comers to save us from our enemies. Enemies? I repeated. The newcomers, supplemented Doriza, they have taken the other side of Dondromagon, and will take our side as well. We defend ourselves at the poles. Now, and her voice rang joyously, you will lead us to defeat and crush them utterly. Not naked like this, I said, and laughed. I must have sounded foolish, but it had its effect. Follow me, deign to follow me, Spar said. Your clothing, your quarters, your destiny all await you. We went out by the door at the rear, and Spar respectfully gestured me upon a metal-plated platform. Standing beside me, he tinkered with a lever. We dropped smoothly away into a dark corridor, past level after level of light and sound. "'Our cities are below ground,' he quavered. "'Whipped by winds above, we must scrabble in the depths for life's necessities, chemicals to transmute into food, to weave into clothing, to weld into tools and weapons.' The mention of food brought to me the thought that I was hungry. I said as much, even as our elevator platform came to the lowest level and stopped. "'I have arranged for that,' Spar began, then fell silent, fingers combing his beard in embarrassment. "'Arranged food for me?' I prompted sharply. "'As if you know I had come? What pardon, great Yandro!' babbled Spar. I was saying that I arranged food, as always, for whatever guests should come. Please follow. We entered a new, small chamber, where a table was set with dishes of porcelain-like plastic. Spar held a chair for me and waited on me with the utmost gingerly respect. The food was a pungent and filling jelly, a little bundle of transparent leaves or scraps like cellophane, and tasting of spice and a tumbler of pink juice. I felt refreshed and satisfied, and thanked Spar, who led me on to the next room. "'Behold!' he said with a dramatic gesture. "'Your garments, even as they have been preserved against your coming!' It was a sleeping chamber with a cot made fast to the wall, a metal locker or cupboard with a glass door, through which showed the garments of which Spar spoke. The door closed softly behind me. I was left alone. Knowing that it was expected of me, I went to the locker and opened the door. The garments inside were old, I could see, but well-kept and serviceable. I studied their type, and my hands, if not my mind, seemed familiar with them. There was a kilt-like item, belted at the waist and falling to mid-thigh. A resilient band at the top with a series of belt-holes made it adaptable to my own body or to any other. Then came an upper garment, 
a long strip of soft, close-woven fabric that spiraled around the torso from hip to armpit, the end looping over the left shoulder and giving full play to the arms. A gold-worked fillet bound the brows and swept back my longish hair, knotting at the nape of the neck. The only fitted articles were a pair of shoes, metal-soled and soft-uppered, that went on well enough and ran cross-garters up to below the knee like buskins. The case also held a platinum chain for the neck, a belt-bag, and a handsome sword with clips to fasten them in place. These things, too, I donned and closed the glass door. The light struck it at such an angle as to make it serve for a full-length mirror. With some curiosity I gazed at my image. The close-fitting costume was rich and dark, with bright colors only for edgings and minor accessories. I myself, and it was as if I saw my body for the first time, towered rather bluffly with great breadth of chest and shoulder, and legs robust enough to carry such bulk. The face was square but haggard, as if from some toil or pain which was now wiped from my recollection. The nose had been even bigger than it was now, but a fracture had shortened it somewhat. The eyes were deep-set and dark and moody, small wonder. The chin heavy, the mouth made grim by a scar at one corner. Black shaggy hair hung down like brackets. All told, I looked like a proper person for physical labor or even fierce fighting, but surely no inspirational leader or savior of a distressed people. I took the military cloak which Doriza had lent me and slung it over my shoulders. Turning, I clanked out on my metal-soled shoes. Spar was waiting in the room where I had eaten. His eyes widened at sight of me. Something like a grin of triumph flashed through his beard. Then he bowed, supple and humble, his palms together. "'It is indeed Yandro, our great chief,' he mumbled. Then he turned and crossed the room. A sort of mouthpiece sprouted from the wall. "'I announce,' he intoned into it, "'I announce, I, Spar, the reader and foreteller of wisdom, Yandro is with us. He awaits his partners and friends. Let them meet him in the audience hall.' Facing me again he motioned most respectfully toward the door to the hall. I moved to open it, and he followed, muttering. Outside stood Doriza. Her blue eyes met mine, and her lips moved to frame a word. Then, suddenly, she was on her knees, catching my hand and kissing it. "'I serve Yandro,' she vowed tremulously, "'now and forever, and happy that I was fated to live when he returned for the rescue of all Dondromagon.' Please get up, I bade her, trying not to sound as embarrassed as I felt. Come with me. There is still much that I do not understand. I am Yandro's orderly and helper, she said. Rising, she ranged herself at my left hand. Will Yandro come this way? He will be awaited in the audience hall. It seemed to me then that the corridors were vast and mixed as a labyrinth, but Doriza guided me without the slightest hesitation past one tangled crossway after another. My questions she answered with a mixture of awe and brightness. 
it is necessary that we live like this, she explained. The hot air of Dandromagon's sunlit face is ever rising, and the cold air from the dark side comes rushing under to fill the vacuum. Naturally our strip of twilight country is never free of winds, too high and fierce to fight. No crops can grow outside, no domestic animals flourish. We must pin ourselves away from the sky and soil, with stout walls and heavy sunken parapets. Our deep minds afford every element for necessities of life. I looked at my garments and hers. There were various kinds of fabric which I now saw plainly to be synthetic. The other side, where those you call the newcomers dwell and fight, I reminded, is it also wind-swept? Why can two people not join forces and face toil and nature together? They should fight not each other but the elements. Doriza had no answer that time, but Spar spoke up behind us. Great Yandro is wise as well as powerful, but the newcomers do not want to help nor even to conquer. They want to obliterate us. There is nothing to do, not for lifetimes, but to fight them back at the two poles." We came to a main corridor. It had a line of armed guards, but no pedestrians or vehicles, though I thought I caught a murmur of far-off traffic. Doriza paused before a great portal, closed by a curtain-like sheet of dull metal. She spoke into a mouthpiece. Doriza, gentlewoman of the guard, conducts Yandro, the conquering stranger, to greet his lieutenants. I have said that the portal was closed by a curtain-like metal sheet, and like a curtain it lifted, letting us through into the auditorium. The spacious chamber had rows of benches, with galleries above that might have seated a thousand. However, only a dozen or so were present, on metal chairs ranged across the stage upon which we entered. They were all men but two, and wore robes of black, plum-purple, or red. At sight of me they rose together most respectfully. They looked at me, and I looked at them. My first thought was that if these were people of authority and trust in the nation I seemed destined to save, my work was cut out for me. Not that they really seemed stupid, none had the look or the subsequent action of stupidity, but they were not pleasant. Their dozen pairs of eyes fixed on me with some steadiness, but with no frankness anywhere. One man had a round, greedy-seeming face. Another was too narrow and cunning to look at. Of the women, one was nearly as tall as I, and nobly proportioned, with hair of a red that would be inspiring were it not so blatantly dyed. The other was a little wisp of a brunette, with teeth too big for her scarlet mouth, and bright eyes like some sort of a rodent. They all wore jewelry. Too much jewelry. My mind flew back to the two scrubby, venial guardsmen who had first welcomed me, to stuffy Robar, the commander, to Spar, spry and clever enough, but somehow unwholesome, Doriza, no, she was not like these others, who may have lived too long in their earth-buried shelters, and Doriza now spoke to the gathering. Yandro, Folk of the Council, he deigns to give you audience. Yandro! They all spoke the name in chorus and bowed toward me. Silence, then, a silence which evidently I must break. I broke it. Friends, 
I am among you with no more memory or knowledge than an infant. I hear wonderful things of which I seem to be the center. Are they true? The tenth part of the wonders which concern mighty Yandro have not been told, intoned Spar, ducking his bearded head in a bow, but fixing me with his wise old eyes. One of the group, called counsel by Doriza, now moved a pace forward. He was the greedy-faced man, short but plump, and very conscious of the dignified folds of his purple robe. One carefully tended hand brushed back his ginger-brown hair, then toyed with a little mustache. "'I am Jeter, senior of this council,' he purred. "'If Yandro permits, I will speak simply. Our hopes have been raised by Yandro's return the return presaged of old by those who could see the future, and more recently by the death in battle of the newcomer champion called Barak. Barak, I repeated, I, I, and I paused. When I had to learn my own name, how could it be that I sensed memory of another's name? Barak was a brute, mighty, but a brute. Thus Jeddar continued. Weapons in his hands were the instruments of fate. His hands alone caused fear and ruin, but it pleased our fortune-bringing stars to encompass his destruction. He grinned and licked his full lips. Now, even as they are without their battle-leader, so we have ours. You honor me, I told him. Yet I still know little. It seems that I am expected to aid and lead and save the people of this world called Dondromagon, but I must know them before I can help." Jeddar turned his eyes upon the woman with the red hair and gestured to her. "'Tell him, Iloni.' Then he faced me. "'Have we Yandro's permission to sit?' "'By all means,' I granted, a little impatiently, and sat down myself. The others followed suit. The council on their range of chairs, Doriza on a bench near me, Bar somewhere behind. The woman called Iloni remained upon her sandaled feet, great eyes the color of deep green water fixed upon me. Iloni was taller than any of her fellow council members, taller than Spar, almost as tall as I. Her figure was mature, generous, but fine, and set off by a snugly draped robe as red as her dyed cascade of hair. Red dyed, too, were the tips of her fingers, and her lips were made vivid and curvy beyond nature by artificial crimson. She made a bow toward me, smiled a little, showing most perfect white teeth. She began. Don Drogomon began with the first comers. Many ages they ruled here the fifteen of them. Forever they were fifteen, for when one died another was bred, when one was born the oldest, or least useful, was eliminated. It was they who planned and began this shelter city, found the elements that support life and give comfort. Others came from far worlds. The fifteen changed their policy of a fixed number and became rulers of the new colonists. But after some study it was decided to set a new limit. Seven hundred was decided upon, and seven hundred we still remain. Wait, I interrupted. You mean that when new children are born among you someone must die? 
She nodded. Exactly as with the fifteen. We eliminate the least useful. Sometimes we eliminate the child itself, more often an older and worn-out individual. I thought that I sensed an uncomfortable wriggle in spar behind me. Why is this? I demanded. Because, Yandro, there cannot be room and supplies enough for a greater number. I scowled to myself. So far I had seen luxury enough in Dondromagon's chambers and tunnels, but there remained so much to learn. Go on, I bade her. She nodded again and obeyed. Thus we on Dondromagon live and have lived. This world is ours, its good and evil. But, and her voice, from a soft, shy murmur, turned hard. There are those who do not wish it so. The newcomers, the invaders. Ill be their fate, growled Jetter beside her, as if rehearsed. They came to us not long ago in years. But I forget, Yandro does not know as yet the length of Dondromagon's year or Dondromagon's day. They came, then, no longer ago than the time needed for a baby to become a child. Three years of my own reckoning, I decided, and wish she had not mentioned babies and children. I still dislike that arbitrary survival of the fittest custom. Where did they come from? I asked. Who can tell? Perhaps from the forgotten world where came our ancestors. Somehow they had learned of our conquest here, our advances and wealth-gathering in spite of natural obstacles. That is what they hope to plunder from us, these conquering newcomers. Ill be their fate, repeated Jetter and two or three of the council with him. But the winds are too high for a final battle to happen quickly. After some fighting they seized upon the other strip of habitable land on Dondromagon's other side. We fight them at the two poles, mostly underground. Do you understand? I seem to, I replied. But now what about me, the story of Yandro? Did not Spar tell everything? broke in Jetter. He should have done so. Spar, the council is not pleased. I had to go slowly, apologized the old man, and Eloni took up the tale. It is known to all on Dondromagon. The days of the first comers held great minds that could see the future. Then it was foreseen that, in Dondromagon's hour of peril and need, a time set by the destruction of an enemy great and mighty, Barak, I said aloud, still puzzling over that strangely familiar name. At that time, finished Eloni, a leader to be called Yandro, the conquering stranger, would come. Even clothing was supplied, clothing not like that we wear today. She gestured toward me. Indeed, the garments I wore were different from those of my companions. I shook my head slowly and tried to digest what I had heard once again, but one bit of it still clamored for rejection. About these eliminations, I harked back, who decides on which person must die to keep the number down to seven hundred? We do, replied Jetter, almost bleakly. And the newcomers, have they a similar custom? Not they, the greedy interlopers. Jetter looked very greedy himself. They delve and destroy in Dondromagon, feeding ever new spates of arrivals. It seems, I offered. 
that you would be well advised to grow in number and so win this war. But Jeter shook his head. We checkmate them at the two poles, where the way into our territory is narrow, and more than seven hundred would be hard to make comfortable. Friends, I do not like it, I stated flatly. There seems to be ruthlessness and waste. Why waste? spoke up another of the council, the narrow man, whose name was Strebakar. This war was begun only recently, but it will last forever, at least so I see it. Now that Yandro is here it shall be brought to an end, pronounced Eloni, her green eyes fixed on me. Will it please Yandro to see something of this war? Since you make it so much my business I would be pleased indeed, I told her. And Spar rose from his seat. He went to an oblong of white translucency on a side wall of the stage within sight of us all. It was about twice a man's height by thrice a man's width. The screen of Televizo, he said to me, and touched a dial beside it. The screen lighted with confused blurrings of color and movement. He dialed quickly and knowingly. We see an underground passage, he said, and those who dispute therein. I could see a gloomy stretch of earth wall passage, lighted from somewhere by a yellow radiance that became dim and brown toward one end. I had no way of judging the true size of the object whose image I saw until I made out stealthy movement at the darker end. Spar's dialing made parts of the scene clear, and the movement proved to be that of a human figure, prone and partially concealed in a depression of the floor. That figure was no more than half-height, by which I estimated the passage itself to be some fifteen or eighteen feet to the top of its rough dug ceiling. A scout, breathed Dorisa beside me, pointing to the prone man. See, Yandro, he wears earth-colored cloth over his armor, and his arms and face are smeared with mud. The thing he holds is a ray-digger, whereby he burrows his way forward to the enemy. Enemy in the same tunnel with him? I asked. Right. I saw her blonde head dip. Our tunnel broke into one of theirs, by accident or plan. At point of contact, both forces are cautious, fearing ambush. Now she said no more. The scout on the screen was apparently creeping forward through the solid soil of the floor, only the top of his head and shoulders showing. Once or twice I saw the object he employed, a baton-like tool of black metal with a bulb or ball at one end. It emitted faint sparks and shudders of light, which melted or vaporized the earth ahead of him. See. He senses danger near. Indeed he did, for he paused and took something else from his belt, a disc the size of his palm. This he held close to his face, studying it. Televizo, explained Dorisa. It has limited power of identifying both sound and sight near at hand. The scout knows that enemy approach. Still working his dials, Spar made the scene slide along. The bright end of the tunnel came into view for some yards. All who watched leaned forward excitedly. "'Newcomers!' breathed Jetter, and added his familiar curse. "'Ill be their fate! They have one of those vibration shields!' "'Warn the advance party,' bade Stribakar and Spar, turning from his dials, muttered quickly into a speaking-tube. 
The situation that thus interested and activated my companions was hard to make out. I saw only an indistinct fuzziness and a sort of niche against the tunnel walled. Doriza pointed. A vibration shield, she told me. The newcomers have such things. Some machine or other power stirs the molecules of air to such a tempo as to create a plane of force. No missile, no light even can penetrate. They are sheltered and all but indistinguishable. See? They go forward. The eddying cloud moved along the tunnel. We could see the scout again. He tucked away his disk and employed the ray-digger. Quickly he sank deeper and out of sight. Burrowing in, pronounced Jetter, if he succeeds in what he hopes. Spare him, you mean? asked Strivakar, and Jetter nodded. The eddying blotch that marked the power shield of the invaders came closer. I saw it approach the place where the scout had burrowed away. It paused there, as if those hidden by it were investigating. Then— Brave fellow! cried Ilone, like someone at an exciting sports event or play. The scout had dug himself a little channel beneath the floor. Now he burst into view, beyond and behind the invaders. He held a pistol weapon in each hand. One spat sparks, some sort of pellets or projectiles. The other was plainly a web spinner like the one that first had bound me, and this he poised ready for use. His projectile seemed to find an opening behind the power shield. A human form lurched into view, a glowing, writhing form, like a man of red-hot metal. An agonized leap, a shudder, and the body fell, abruptly falling into clinkered bits. A moment later the power shield disturbance vanished, and there stood revealed two others, clad like the scout in earth-colored jumper over armor. He got the power shield man, exulted Eloni. She was on her feet, applauding wildly. In the same second I saw the scout point and discharge his spinner gun. Whirling coils of cord struck, wound, and tangled the two foremen. The scout's bearded mouth opened as if he yelled in exultation. But that was his last cry and action. Another eddy, larger and swifter, suddenly came into the picture behind him. From it sprang a pale shaft of light. The scout went down on his face as if in sudden prayer. He moved no more. Toward the dark end, Androgomon figures seemed to move. There was a great splatter of spark pellets, but the eddy of the new power shield had scurried forward, enveloping and vanishing the two bound men. It retired as quickly. No movement, no figure, except those of the dead scout and the charred remains of the man he had killed. "'There will be little action here for some time to come,' announced Jenner. "'Switch it off, Spar.' Spar did so. I shook myself as if to rid my body of unpleasant dampness and chill. "'Exciting,' I said. "'Unusual. I suppose this goes on all the time?' "'Not all the time.' Eloni demurred. As Yandro has heard, the battle areas are limited in the region of the poles. There is much maneuvering, but not too much contact. This incident was an order. Order? I repeated. We sent the man you saw, knowing that you would want this televiso view of how we made war. I snorted and faced her angrily. 
You sent him to his death so that I could see a show? You value life very cheaply, Eloni. End of Part Two